Assalamu alaikum. I'm Latasha Russo, Executive Director of Sapelo Square, and welcome to On the Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with the Maidan, where every month, Sapelo Squad get on the square and into some real talk about race and Islam in the Americas. Assalamu alaikum. I am Ambata Kazi, and I am the Senior Editor with Sapelo Square. You're listening to On the Square, real talk on race and Islam in the Americas. Our guest today is Alia Bilal, author of the new book, Temple Folk, a collection of short stories portraying the lived experiences of Black Muslims grappling with faith, family, and freedom in America. Temple Folk published in July of this year. A little background on Alia, she was born and raised in Prince George's County, Maryland, She has degrees from Oberlin College and the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. Her stories and essays have been published with the Michigan Quarterly Review, The Rumpus, and the Chicago Quarterly Review. Temple Folk is her first book. Alia, welcome to On the Square. Thank you. Assalamualaikum. Thanks for having me. Salam. So I wanted to congratulate you on publishing your book. and if you can share the experiences that you've had so far with your book being published with us. Sure, I'd be happy to. So Temple Folk published on July 4th of this year, only two months ago, which is a happy coincidence in some ways and something my editor had to point out to me that the Nation of Islam was founded on July 4th in 1930. I didn't even know that. No, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I don't think anybody at Simon Schuster knew that. Uh, And so it's only been two months. And so far, I would say so good. You know, the response has been pretty quiet. So I don't really have a sense of how people are reacting to this book. I, it's probably better that way. Um, but yeah, everything has been pretty cool so far. Wonderful. Um, yeah, it, I think it's uh, an awesome achievement that you have to to have your book published. I know for you know our listeners out there, you know, we probably have a lot of writers and uh, fledgling writers. So to, and especially for Black Muslims, to know that you know someone ha- has written a book and published it with a you know a big a big uh, publisher i mean simon schuster is one of the big five publishers so that's a really awesome achievement for for a black muslim writer and you know inshallah um your readership will only pick up as more people know about the book um so i did want to talk a little bit about your life before we talk about the book um I know that you have uh, or have been learning Chinese for some time and have um, lived in China for, for a while. And I just wanted that's such a, you know, just a unique um, fact about you. And um, if you can tell a little bit more about this experience, like what um, how, how did you become interested in learning Chinese and, and wanting to live there? Absolutely. So when I was a student At Oberlin College, I considered myself a budding Islamicist. And at the time, I was very interested in learning about Muslim minority populations in different parts of the world and had spent a lot of time uh, in southern Spain learning about the Moorish presence there. Mm -hmm. And as I was graduating college, I became interested in learning about Muslims in 
Western China. And I got a really cool fellowship uh, to study among the Huizu of uh, Kunming, Yunnan, China. And so I did not have a pure interest in Chinese, the Chinese language or Chinese culture. I was really more so interested in um, this minority experience. And that was my entry point into learning about this, this culture. Okay. Thank you. Wow. That's really um, interesting. And, and so you've, you've studied at Oberlin College and London School of Economics. I mean, that's a, wow, that's a big difference. Um, can I ask like what you studied and, and, and why, why the London School of Economics? Sure. Well, I uh, got my master's degree from the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. And uh, it's oh, funny. Me, I'm because, sorry. No, sorry. it's fine. <laughs> it's fine because yeah. they're very, actually very close to each other. <laughs> uh, and so I, I can understand um, the confusion. But yeah, they're very, very different institutions. And I studied African history uh, while I was a student there really focused on East Africa and um, sort of the syncretic practices among Muslims in the littoral world of Swahili speaking um, Tanzania. So I uh, just wanted to learn about Muslims in East Africa and um, that was what sent me to London. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, so your background and your, your professional background, it, not being in literature or writing, um, so what made you turn to writing? Mm, um, it wasn't a conscious choice. I don't know many writers. I know you're a writer too. Um, many writers that just consciously embark upon a writing path. I think we have these traits that predispose us to a writing life. And those traits started developing in me at a very, very young age. And I tell this story differently depending on the day. (laughs) You know, when did you become a writer? What was the starting point? And, um, my mother, <laughs> since since I got this book deal and um, have published Temple Folk, she always recounts, you know, when you were a little girl, you would always write stories and I would <laughs> post them in my office and my colleagues would read them. And I have no memories of that. <sighs> but I do remember as a middle schooler um, taking my first creative writing class and every time it was my turn to share, I always stood up from my seat and read my little stories and I always had a really big smile on my face as I was reading. I don't know. I think I just, there was something inside of me that had always um, loved everything to do with reading and writing. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really don't know how to tell that story of how I became a writer. They're just all of these little talents and traits that I had that came together. Like, for instance, I've always had exceptionally beautiful handwriting. Mm, And even I, you know, when I write, I write longhand. 
And I love looking at my own writing. I just think, I don't know how this sounds, but I just think, oh my gosh, you have such beautiful handwriting. I just love to write. I love everything about writing. And so um, that's that's really how it happened for me. It just Mm -hmm. was part of me. Yeah. Okay. That makes, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there's no, there's like, no, of course, no one story or one like opening point, you know, if I guess for me, if people, when people ask me that, I'm like, well, I don't know, I've been reading, you know, I I guess maybe when I discovered words, you know, (laughs) which was a long time ago, maybe I was already a writer then, Mm. you know, without actually putting a pen to paper yet, you know, Um, just that interest that I had with words, you know, um, So that's writing in general. So um, I guess to move into the to the book. So these stories, Temple Folk, what do you can you point to a time when you were, wanted to write these particular stories? Mm. You know, it, the evolution of this project does not really begin with the stories as they are currently um you know sort of positioned in this book the temple folk really began as an act of self-creation i felt this sense that i was not a presence in my own life because there wasn't anything in the culture to reflect me back to myself and that there were these sort of fledgling attempts at telling Muslim stories, Black Muslim stories, but that none of them resonated. I didn't feel like the target audience of the kinds of stories that were being told. Mm-hmm. And um, I um, was also... I don't know if you relate to this, but just deeply offended by the kinds of stereotypical images that were floating around out there about people like us. Mm-hmm. And that just something inside of me is just like, you know, I could do so much better. I, <laughs> I can do so much better than this yeah. stuff that's out here. And so it really began sort of in that way, knowing that I could do better and also just feeling like if I didn't do it, something inside of me was just not going to make it, you know, it was Mm -hmm. like, um, I needed these stories. I needed these stories, um, the way, uh, and this may seem like an exaggeration, but I really mean it like the way we need water and air. Like I needed Mm -hmm. to write this book. And so I didn't know how I was going to do it because I didn't have any sort of formal writing education. And, you know, when you, make that transition from being a reader to being a writer you sort of are asking yourself okay well how do I start because you spend all of these years of your life sitting on the other side of these books just being manipulated by these masterful writers and Mm -hmm. you want to know how they do the magic that they do and you know it took me several years um, just teaching myself you know, teaching myself how to approach the writing as a writer and not as a reader. Mm. And then Mm. as I started feeling a little bit more confident that I knew what was happening on the page, I just said to myself, so this is how it started. I said, okay, what I feel capable of 
is writing a book about African-American Muslims as a series of maybe 30 vignettes on par with Gwendolyn Brooks' Maud Martha. Do you, do you like that book? I have not read that one. Oh my gosh, I yeah. love that book. It's a petite little book. And I think t- technically it's a novella. And it's very, rem- I shouldn't say reminiscent of House on Mango Street because House on Mango Street derives its structure from Maud Martha. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but they favor each other, these books, because um, their chapters are very, very petite. And they're little vignettes. They're very poetic style vignettes where you get to see um, this distillation of the lives of, of these people in these domestic settings. Um, and I just, I've always loved Maud Martha. That's one of the books that I've read dozens of times. Mm-hmm. And um, as I started trying to write the vignettes, I then <laughs> realized the mastery and the genius of Gwendolyn Brooks and how things that are petite are not necessarily easy <laughs> because yeah. we can we can look at the scale of a piece of work and think oh think oh well that's pretty brief i can replicate that not so simple not so simple and so i started you know looking for other storytelling masters, people whose work could help guide me into a style of storytelling that was more suited to my capacities and stumbled upon the work of Edward P. Jones. And this is an interesting part of my story because I cannot point to the date or the time that I first read his work. But I think I was visiting my mother in Cairo And my mom has always been an amazing curator of books in my life. She has Mm. excellent taste. And um, I must have found a copy of Lost in the City in her library. And I thought, okay, this is a book of short stories about African-American people in mid-20th century Washington, D.C. Let's give it a go. And I remember being completely absorbed in this book and it's it was the same feeling that one feels when you're falling in love with someone Mm -hmm. where there's just this instant recognition of some kind of compatibility some kind of pull and tug that you have from one soul to the to another and um he just became, you know, he just got locked in my eyesight like Pepe Le Pew or something <laughs> like that. I just said, I love you. I love everything about you. I love your work. Oh, my gosh. And so I just uh, really fell in love with his writing. And um, I didn't have any intention of patterning myself on Edward P. Jones, Mm -hmm. but I spent so many hours with his work that I think I absorbed a lot of his style. And so um, the stories, okay, 
I'm sorry. I feel like I'm talking too much. No, just- no, no. <laughs> You're actually answering what was going to be my next question, which was about your literary inspiration. So just carry on. <laughs> oh, perfect. So Gwendolyn Brooks, we've already put her down. And then yeah. Edward P. Jones, um, who is like Zeus to me, he's the best living or dead. Hmm. And to my sensibility, he's just a superior talent. And so um, um, I immersed myself in his work. And he has this one story, the title story of Lost in the City, mm-hmm. which is a short story about a young woman named Lydia. Well, not a young woman. She's a professional woman who's just received some devastating news. And um, on her way to the hospital to resolve this issue, she gets picked up by a man who drives a black diamond cab and there's something about that man that just felt like, obviously, he's a minor character in the story and is barely there on the page. You know, he's there as a vehicle to get Lydia to the hospital. But there's something in the aura and the spirit of him that just resonated with this sense of, like, he could belong to the world that I know, the world of temple folk. Because so many of the men in the masjids that I frequented as a child were taxi drivers and um, just very sturdy, upright men. And there was this con- contiguous feeling that I felt like there is an overlap here. Like I can see this character in- in- inhabiting the world that I'm trying to imagine for my own writing. And so I think I drew a lot from Lost in the City in terms of trying to establish the atmosphere of temple folk because there's something about the african-american muslim experience as i was trying to imagine it that really draws on that world of the mid-20th century this um, african-american sensibility urban sensibility um and and his book really provided a wonderful aesthetic template for me to begin my work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So now I have some book recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> I've read Edward P. Jones. I've read his his novel. What is it? Uh, the Known World. The Known World. Yes. Yes. But I did not know he had a short story collection. So I have some new reading. Thank you. I have read The House on Mango Street a few times. So that one I'm familiar with. And I do love Gwendolyn Brooks poetry. So um, I will definitely be reading that. Thank you. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So I and um, I wanted to talk about um, writing about challenging topics. Um, I'm a part of a few uh, writer writers groups, like like especially like for Muslim writers, and this is something that comes up a lot in our conversations. Right, writing, you know, being Muslim or from a Muslim background, and like talking about uh, writing about Muslim experiences, right, and whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, writing about, you know, difficult subject matter or taboo topics, right, that we know happen in Muslims' lives, but to write about it, to talk about it, because can easily become controversial, even though we know it's a reality for a lot of people, you know, and some, and in your stories, um, you know, you, you address these topics, right, like um, polygyny and um, sexual identity and um, uh, adultery, right, things that, you know, we know but don't talk about. Um, so I think it could be helpful for our listeners, um, you know, to 
how do you how like how do you write about these challenging topics? Uh, do you face any uh, fear, or have you you know faced any fear, and if you've had to overcome that? So if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, I feel that it's a prerequisite of the writer to address challenging topics. You know, when you are getting where, and I don't mean to be prescriptive, when I am thinking about something that feels uncomfortable, if a worry ever comes up that, oh my gosh, what are people going to think? I know that's exactly the thing I'm supposed to write. <laughs> yeah. And so I move in the direction of the discomfort. I think that's a good sign to the writer that you're on the right track. Um, but I think the other side of the coin is that I don't think I would have been able to write this book if I were a presence in the Muslim community that raised me. Mm. You know, I um, grew up in various masjids in the Washington, D.C. area, principally Masjid Muhammad. Uh, there was another smaller congregation in Glenard in Maryland um, that has since folded. Um, and, you know, when I went to college, obviously, that was the first break with that community. And then, you know, in my walk of life, I've just found myself um, at a great, as happens with many of us, mm -hmm. you know, at a great, not just social, but even ideological distance from, you know, the spaces that raised me. And it's been a heartbreaking evolution in some ways because these are the spaces that cradled me and where I was loved and encouraged to become everything that I am becoming today, but at the same time where I just, um, I have a lot of dis disagreements with the things that happened and the things that uh, continue to happen um, in our communities sometimes. And so um, it's been, you know, just personally, challenging wrestling with these feelings of belonging do I belong or not but the gift in all of this has been the crystallization of my writing perspective I think when I started wanting to write I was very much a part of you know a standard Muslim community and my ambition at the time was you know well, how do I write stories that depict Islam and Muslims in ways that agree with, you know, my beliefs as a um, very observant, you know, in the standard sense, observant Muslim woman. And that was the problem, frankly. That was the problem. Hmm. I don't think, at least in the way that I approached the writing, that any, that I mean, and there are writers that do this, you know. Um, it, you know, having read my fair share of Dostoevsky, um, Brothers Karamazov, mm -hmm. you know, like there are writers who do write from a religious standpoint, and they 
the work is poignant and beautiful and it survives, but I'm just not one of those writers. I had to develop a critical distance from the ideology itself before I was able to see it in a way that I could manipulate it for artistic purposes. And so, um, you know, at this point, I really don't have that many concerns about who the work upsets Hmm. or whether or not the things that people find in the pages agree or disagree with any ideological, you know, point of view within, you know, religious communities. The point, I mean, I only answer to, um, (laughs) you know, what I know to be true about Mm -hmm. the rules of writing itself. You know, I'm not trying to appease anybody except my own sensibility. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, You kind of veered into um, what I was going to talk about next. And it made me realize in talking about your book, I left out an important detail for for listeners who, who may not be familiar with your book at this point, that not only are you writing about Black Muslims, but your writing focuses on Black Muslims in, uh, within the Nation of Islam. And I think that's important for people to know. Um, you know, for me, and I've, and, and I've been you know, sharing your book with other people, and everybody always has the same reaction at first. Like, I don't know anything about the Nation of Islam. Like, I don't think I've ever read anything, you know, um, about the nation. And, and so there's this, like, just for someone on the outside, it's like, I feel like there's kind of like a... Um, I don't feel like a better word for like, I kind of like a secrecy, like, you know, like, and, and I think that's the case with, with Islam in general too. Like if you're not a part of, you know, of, of this uh, religion, then you, you won't know, you know, but I, I and so I think there's like a further remove in, in with the nation and, you know, for a lot of people to, we, we hear things about what people in the nation believe, but we don't, you know, we don't know. Um, so, um, uh, what was I going to say with that? Um, just not knowing that and like, uh, you know, this, your book being like the first time that uh, I was reading anything, you know, about people within the nation. And one of the things I was thinking is that you did a really good job in like giving nuanced portrayals of the people. I think, you know, in fiction, that's not always the case, you know, and, and certainly like in our public discourse lately, I, that's one of the things I feel like is sorely lacking. It's like, there's no nuance, everything everybody wants everything to be black and white, even though it's not, <laughs> you know, so I appreciated the the nuanced portrayals in your book. And another thing I was thinking and reading, I was like, you know, I can't say that they're necessarily favorable portrayals. I mean, they're just real, you know, like complicated. Um, I'm kind of babbling a little bit, but <laughs> I wanted you to kind of talk a little bit about, you've kind of already have, but like, you know, in writing about, um, not necessarily your background, but a, a background that you're familiar with um, and the experience of, and you've, you've already, you know, talked about that, but a little bit more about like that experience of, you know, writing the, something that is personal and something that is not well-known, you know? Mm. Yeah, there are so many things you said just now that I would like to pick up on. Mm. I uh, had an event just a few days after Temple Folk was released in Brooklyn, New York, and there was a gentleman who attended this event. And afterward, he approached me and told me that he was raised in the Nation of Islam, and he so appreciated my book because he felt that it 
was an authentic representation of the experiences of people who had been through the first resurrection um, experience, basically, you know, Islam between 1946 and 1975 Mm -hmm. um, in the nation of Islam, rather. And I asked him after he said this to me, I obviously thanked him. But then I said, do you tell anybody that you were a member, you know, in your daily life? Is this information that you volunteer? And I knew the answer. And <laughs> just as I predicted, he shook his head and told me no. Mm. It's an open secret. I think a lot of people are walking around this country who have ties to this movement who never discuss it because they are aware as I'm becoming aware and even sharing these stories, I was never in the nation of Islam. Uh, I've merely imagined this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in sharing imagined stories about the nation of Islam, I am learning what they know by experience, which is that when you tell people that you were part of this movement, they immediately become defensive and all of these concerns show up on their faces like, do you hate me? <laughs> do you think that white people are the devil? And do you have a racial superiority complex? Do you hate Jewish people? All of these things that people associate with this history. And that's why it's rarely told, mm-hmm. even though there are beloved figures in our culture who were connected and are connected to this movement. Um, Like there's a whole international airport named after Muhammad Ali in Louisville, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a whole international Mm -hmm. airport. And this man was in the nation of Islam. You know, there are a lot of prominent people in our culture and, you, you know, prominent people in our culture who are connected to this movement, but we never talk about it. And so um, it was just important for me to sort of expose the history, in part because it's my own personal history. And I think this is, I think this is where you wanted me to go with your question. My Mm. grandparents converted in the late 1950s. And, you know, in the way that my grandfather relayed his conversion to me, he was frustrated and angry with the state of the country mm-hmm. where black people were continually disrespected, put down, looked down upon. And he felt that by joining the nation of Islam, he could not only resolve some of the disagreements that he'd had with the Christian church, but that he could address his own own need to cultivate self-love in himself and within his family Mm. and so there is something very pure there is a pure desire that a lot of people carried into the nation of islam to just want this desire rather to see themselves in a more dignified light than the various narratives um put forward within the dominant culture provided them. And Mm -hmm. that pure and innocent desire was in many ways abused when people 
joined the movement um, because of the various kinds of abuse, abuses they were subjected to within the nation of Islam. Um, but, you know, there is this mixed legacy that I felt needed to be addressed where there were these abuses, these terrible things that happened to the members and terrible things, frankly, that the members themselves did. Mm-hmm. Um, the terrible malfeasance of the leadership, etc. And there again, there are all of the benefits that accrued not only to the members, but to the larger black culture in general, just because this niche, this organization existed. I just think that it's time to really get real about the ways that the Nation of Islam has benefited this culture, the Mm -hmm. United States culture, and also the ways that it has harmed the members. And so in addition to all of the other things that this book is trying to accomplish, it's just trying to present a more complicated narrative of what this movement has meant within the history of this country but also to put it within a historical context so that we can understand that what we see today as a thriving African-American Sunni um, community in many ways is an outgrowth of uh, the nation of Islam and um, these early 20th century manifestations of Islam in um, this country. And so it was important for me to try to um, structure the stories in a way that it could cohere with this uh, historical narrative as well. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for that. Um, I want to kind of continue this conversation about, um, you know, writing about you know, this, uh, the you know, writing about the nation, this particular background um, that, you know, many of us are unfamiliar with. Um, I know that sometimes, you know, when we're writing from uh, these perspectives, right, lesser known, you know, um, perspectives, lesser read and, and, um, and studied, you know, sometimes there can be like a push to like, whether it's internal or external, like this push to like, kind of write instructively, right, to, to try to teach people, right, because they don't know about it, um, you know, to explain, like, you know, like, uh, like what Tony Morrison said about writing, like writing to the white gaze, right, or in any type of outside gaze. And I know, you know, that can sometimes inhibit, you know, it can, it can, har- it can damage the writing itself. And then, you know, what that can do, you know, to, to a person's psychology when they feel like they're constantly being instructive. Um, so I just wanted to, I don't, it doesn't seem from what you're saying, but have you ever felt that push in writing, you know, to, to, to be instructive? And there's a second part to the question, like, what, what would you say to writers, you know, who want to write from a certain perspective that's less known or less popular, but don't want to, you know, fall into, you know, being a teacher, you know, or explaining, you know, where they're coming from, if you can mm. talk on that. I think it's very easy to sidestep that concern altogether. I think your own sensibility will dictate the kind of work that you do. And when it comes to my approach to 
storytelling, I never really think about things like that. How do I instruct? How do I? What I'm trying to do is keep things simple.、Mm-hmm. I I feel that the more straightforward and plain spoken I can be, the better story I'm actually telling. And if I ever find myself in a place where I'm being overly ornate, I just feel maybe I have more thought work to do.、Um, that the better story. Is actually the one that you know、um, is easier to read.、Mm. Yeah, and so I,、um, I mean, I hope that nobody feels obligated to respond to that pressure.、Mm-hmm. You know, if if、um, I hate to use this word you 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 because you know you should do what you want to do, <laughs> whoever is listening.、Yeah. <laughs> But you know, like.、Um, If someone were to tell me that I should be thinking a little bit more about how、um, people are understanding the work, then I would say, no, I'm not gonna do that because I don't. Okay, in some ways, in the in the editorial process, I did face a little bit of that pressure, but I do have to say that the edits on Temple Folk were very very light.、Mm-hmm. Um, There was some concern with the use of Arabic words、mm-hmm. in the book, and this sense that if I were to use more of them, that it would be too laborious for the reader to constantly have to flip、mm-hmm. back and forth between the book and like Google <laughs> to say, "Okay, well, what does Yamakiya mean?" What does <laughs> <laughs> What do these things mean? And、um, that was a concern. But other than other than things like that, I don't really respond to to that pressure. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know what you were saying, you know, reminded me that you know you said you had, weren't formally trained in writing. You know, like you didn't you didn't you know do the masters of fine arts, which you know.、Um, Some writers or some people who are interested in writing think that they have to have, right? Of course, they don't. And、um, you know, this this confidence you have in your voice that you know, I, I did do an MFA, and so like I do feel like it helped me to like gain that type of confidence. And so, it just you you mentioned already like your writing inspirations, but did you have any professional writing like like I don't know a mentor? Like did you like or did you read craft books? You know, I'm, 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 and I'm just gonna, because this is kind of leading into my next question, because this is a short story collection, and I think that you know, sh- short stories is, is like a deceptive form. People think like, oh, it's, I can write a short story; it's easy. But it's a, like you mentioned earlier, it's actually much more challenging to tell you know a story,、um, a, a full story, right, in this compact form. So.、Um, Did you did you seek out any craft books or anything to help you with writing and then writing short stories in particular? No, I didn't. I bought a couple of those books and didn't read a single chapter of them. <laughs> you know how you buy books and you're like, I'm gonna tackle you. <laughs> they never get read. Yes, I don't know. I just they radiated something that was very repulsive to me. I I just、hmm. um, maybe it's pride, but I I just couldn't. I couldn't appreciate the filter、mm. because 
the little bit that I did read of these craft books didn't remind me of my own take on stories. Um, and so they weren't helpful to me. Um, or maybe I'm just weird that way. They weren't helpful to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, I, I can't say that I didn't, I didn't have mentors. Um, I developed some friendships with some older people who indulged my interest in writing. I don't know how serious of a writer they, or I didn't think they perceived me as being very ambitious. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they, they saw that in me, but um, they were kind enough, you know, um, there is one gentleman in particular who I never actually shared my writing with him, but he was just someone who was like a wonderful sounding board uh, to me. His name is Ethelbert Miller, and he um, is a fixture in literary Washington, D.C. And I reached out to him for related to a project completely distinct from <laughs> I wanted to do a go-go documentary at the time mm, okay. I love go-go music and so I reached out to him asking him if he would mind being a subject for an interview and he doesn't like go-go you know <laughs> at all. he's a New York transplant to DC and so go-go is not his thing but he was kind enough anyway to just talk to me and it was just wonderful having his confidence and just when that happens, it just makes you feel like, well, this person, this accomplished person thinks something of me. Maybe, maybe I do have some talent and that's sometimes all that you really need mm-hmm. is just the confidence of people you respect uh, that ignite something within you. And I think things like that actually I don't know if that was as helpful to me as other people's disbelief. Mm. I think it was people's disbelief in my capacities that was more of a motivation to me than the kindnesses that were shown to me by people like Ethelbert Miller. We all have stories. I'm sure you have your own stories of Mm -hmm. instances where you've shared work or told people about your ambitions and they sort of chuckle or laugh at you (laughs) (laughs) and you know there's the embarrassing kinds of things that happen to artists when you're opening your heart and people just step on it they don't just step on it they squish it like a (laughs) ants on the roadside you know Mm -hmm. and those kinds of things are the things that I think really make artists um because you just have to have that softness that enables you to create Mm-hmm. But also this toughness, this impenetrable toughness that says it doesn't matter what the world throws at me. I'm going to do my work. Yeah. I don't care what anybody says. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I just developed, I've always had a lot of audacity. <laughs> but the process of becoming a, a writer has just given me just <laughs> untold levels of audacity. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I hope that helps anyone who's listening who, you know, is struggling with confidence, you know, because it really like, yeah, I, I do feel like you have to have a bit of a defiance, you know, and I know for me, like, have, I knew, thankfully, because I was already a part of a writer's group before uh, starting an MFA, I 
kind of knew I had to have that defiance going in. And I think that really helped me. You know, I didn't go in like, oh, you know, kind of timid, like, you know, maybe I'm okay. Baby. You know, I was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm here. I'm here because I belong to me. You know, this is where I'm supposed to be. Right. And, I, you know, I think that really did help me. And, and the writers group that I was a part of was, it was for writers of color. I'm from New Orleans. So it was, it was in New Orleans. It was a, a writers of color in New Orleans. And so they kind of gave me, you know, I already had people basically saying, you know, you've got what it takes, you know? So I went in, you know, with that feeling. And I think that's just super important, like as your foundation, like whether you do MFA, read craft books, whatever, or you just winging it on your own, like trying it on your own, like you had just have to believe in yourself, you know? Absolutely. And, um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's really important. Um, so I do have, I just have one more question. Um, it's one that all creative people love and I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> and that question is what is next for you? Are you working on anything else right now? Oh, you're going to hate me because I don't, <laughs> I don't talk about my work. Okay, I, um, okay. I am working on something new and it's, it's thrilling to me. It's exciting to me. It's very, very difficult. It's much more difficult than Temple Folk, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the process of thinking about this is so delicious and hard and everything writing should be. And so I am in, and it's a painful process. It's all, I don't know how writing works for you, but it's, it's always a painful process, but I, I liken it to childbirth, even though I've never had children. <laughs> it just seems like when it's here, you'd forget about the pain. Mm, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's that's like, a good description. <laughs> I have this new thing in my hands and yes, it took forever to create and yes, it was painful and tried to take me out, but it's here. And so I'm kind of going through mm-hmm. the, the painful process part, yeah. of creation right now. But, but um, you know, when you're built for it, you kind of just, you have to do it. You have to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all I really wanted to know. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to get you to like talk about what exactly it is, but I'm just happy to know that you are working on something, um, and I look forward to it, inshallah. Um, so thank you so much, and I want to thank our audience for tuning into this episode of On the Square. You can find more information about what we discussed, including links and more, by visiting sapelosquare.com/onthesquare or themaydan.com slash podcast. Our theme music is provided by Fanatic on Beats. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum.